occupied the upper city and a large part of the lower, and now launched more violent attacks on John's men, since they were also being assailed from above, but had to attack them from beneath, just as the latter had their foes above them. John, thus attacked from both sides, sustained as many losses as he inflicted, and he lost by being lower than Eliezer, as much as he gained by being higher than Simon. Consequently, while he vigorously repelled attacks from below with hand missiles, he preserved, preserved his engines to counter the hail of javelins showered on him from the temple above him, for he was amply supplied with quick fires, catapults, and stone throwers, with which he not only repulsed his assailants, but also killed many of the worshippers. For though these men were apt to commit any sacrilege, they nevertheless admitted those who wished to offer sacrifices, natives suspiciously and on their guard, foreigners after a thorough search. Yet even these, though they gained entrance by putting their cruelty to shame, often became casual victims of the sedition. For the missiles from the engines came over with such force that they reached the altar and the sanctuary, falling upon priests and sacrificers. Now, can you imagine this? A, a sacrificial, uh, uh, you know, sacrifice going on to the God of Israel, the God of the world, and in the midst of this, you've got three factions of Jews all killing each other, and you know, at the same time, killing priests and sacrificers at the same time. I mean, can you imagine the bloodbath that's going on here? I continue, and many who had hastened from the ends of the earth to gather around this far-famed spot, which all mankind held sacred, fell there themselves before their offerings and sprinkled with their own blood the altar universally revered by Greeks and barbarians. The dead bodies of natives and aliens, of priests and laymen, were mingled in a mass and the blood of all manner of corpses formed pools in the sacred courts of God. Most wretched city, what have you suffered from the Romans to compare with this, when they entered the gates to purify with fire the abominations of your sons? For you were no longer the dwelling place of God, nor could you continue after you became a cemetery for the bodies of your own sons, and your temple had been transformed into a burial ground for the victims of civil war. Yet even now there might be hope for an amelioration of your lot, if only you would make atonement before God, who destroyed you. However, even one's emotions must be restrained in obedience to the laws of history, since this is not the place for private lamentations, but for a narrative of events. So I will proceed to relate the subsequent course of the sedition. The plotters against the city were now divided into three camps. Again, these are all Jews here and Idumeans, those who were forced to be Jews a couple centuries earlier. Eliezer and his party, who had the sacred first fruits in their hands, made John the target of their drunken fury. The latter and his men plundered the town folk and directed their rage upon Simon, while Simon and his struggle against the rival factions was dependent upon the city for supplies. Whenever John found himself assaulted on both sides, he made his men face both ways 
and on the one hand firing missiles from porticos upon those coming up from the town, and on the other repelling with his engines those who showered javelins upon him from the temple. But whenever the pressure from above was relaxed, it was often interrupted by drunkenness and exhaustion. He would sally out with more confidence and in greater strength against Simon. To whatever part of the city he turned, he invariably managed to set fire to the houses stocked with grain and all kinds of provision. When he withdrew, Simon advanced and followed his example. As if purposely to serve the Romans, they were destroying all that the city had provided against the siege, hamstringing the sinews of their own strength. The result, at any rate, was that all the environs of the temple were reduced to ashes. The city became a desolate no-man's land for the domestic warfare, and almost all the grain which might have sufficed them for many years of siege were burned up. It was due to famine that the city fell, a fate which would have been practically impossible had they not paved the way for it themselves. The entire city was made beset on all sides by the battling plotters and their rabble, and between them the people were torn to bits like a huge carcass. Old men and women in their helpless state prayed for the Romans to come and looked forward to the war outside which would free them from the miseries within. Bitter despondency and alarm filled the hearts of loyal citizens. They had no chance to plan a change of policy no hope of treaty or flight, even if they wanted it. For watch was kept everywhere, and the brigand chiefs, quarreling about everything else, executed as common enemies all who were in favor of peace with the Romans, or were suspected of intending to desert, and were unanimous on only one thing, to slaughter those deserving of deliverance. The shouting of the combatants rang on ceaselessly day and night, but more harrowing still were the terrifying lamentations of the mourners. Their calamities provided, indeed, one cause of grief after another, but wailings were bottled up by consternation, and while afraid to voice their anguish, they were tortured with stifling groans. The living no longer counted for anything with their relatives. No one bothered to bury the dead, the reason for both being everyone's despair of their own life. For those who did not part take part of the civil war lost interest in everything, momentarily expecting certain death. The rival parties, meanwhile, were locked in strife, trampling over the dead bodies that were piled upon each other and inhaling droughts of frenzy from the corpses at their feet. They became even more savage. They were constantly devising some new instrument of mutual destruction and relentlessly putting every new plan into practice. They left no method of outrage or brutality untried. The last scene about the altar, the most holy place in the world, 1900 years ago, looked like this. This is a the, the emperor approaching the temple, the, uh, the general. He was followed by all his generals, and these in turn by the excited legionnaires, with the shout and confusion characteristic of a disorder rushed by a large, such a large force. Caesar, both through voice and a raised hand, waved to the combatants to put out the fire. 
but his shouts were not heard, as their ears were deafened by the overwhelming din, and his beckoning hand went unheeded amid the distractions of the fight and the avenging fury. No exhortation or threat could now restrain the impetuosity of the legions, for passion was in supreme command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled down by their companions, others, stumbling on the smoldering and smoke-filled ruins of the porticoes, died as miserably as the defeated. As they drew closer to the temple, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's orders, but urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The rebels were powerless to help. Carnage and flight spread throughout. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught. The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher about the temple. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the body of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. Now please hear this. Those of you who seek to keep Moses to keep the law, to keep portions of the law. This was the end of the law. This was the end of the entire sacrificial system. This was the end of the Ten Commandments. This was the end of the Levitical priesthood. The genealogical records were destroyed. No more high priest could be elected. At this particular time, Thousands and tens of thousands of Jewish women were raped, their blood mixed with Gentiles. The Levitical system was finished. The priesthood was finished. The genealogical records were done away. And the only place on the face of this earth to offer up sacrifice was destroyed and banned to offer sacrifices ever again. Please understand this, those of you who seek to go back to the law, live in a death more worse than the death we just described. Because those of you who seek to live under the law are spiritually dead. I don't care if you speak in tongues. I don't care if you raise the dead. You're dead. Now, it's vitally important for, for us to see who destroyed Jerusalem. Was it, in fact, the Romans? In Matthew 21, Jesus uh, speaks about uh, the owner of the vineyard. And when he comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They say to him, he will destroy those wicked, miserable men and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit in their season. We have to understand that he who came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem was not Titus. It was God himself coming in clouds, in power, and in glory to do vengeance upon his enemies, the chosen people, 
Israel. You know, the Romans were very proud people. They took credit for everything that they did. In Book 6, Chapter 9, verse uh, Section 1, we get this account of what Titus said. When Titus entered the city, he was amazed by its strength, and especially by the towers, which the tyrant chiefs in their mad folly had abandoned. And when he observed this solid and lofty mass all the way up, the tremendous size of each block and how accurately they fit, also how great their breadth and how immense their height, he, explained, he exclaimed, God indeed has been our ally in this war. It was God who brought down the Jews from their strongholds. For what could human hands or engines accomplish against such towers? At this time he made similar observations to his friends, and he also set free all persons imprisoned by the tyrant chiefs who were found in the forts. Later, when he destroyed the rest of the city and pulled down the walls, he left the tower as a memorial to his own fortune, to whose co cooperation he owed his victory over such impregnable defenses. Revelation 11.8 And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. The riches of Jerusalem, everything in it, was carried off to Rome. And in the seventh book, we get a, uh, a large, long picture of the triumph that was given uh, of all the slaves and all the, the, the riches that were taken from the city. I'm just going to read a short portion of that. Many ships also followed. Most of the spoils were heaped up indiscriminately, but more prominent than all the rest were those captured in the temple at Jerusalem. They consisted of a golden table weighing many talents and a candelabrum also made of gold, but different in pattern from those we use in ordinary life. Its central shaft was fixed to base, and from it extended slender branches arranged like the prongs of a trident, while a wrought lamp was attached to each end of each branch. These numbered seven, indicating the sanctity of that number to the Jews. After these, and last of all the spoils, was carried a copy of the Jewish law. Then followed a large group carrying images of victory, all fashions of ivory and gold. Behind them, Vespasian drove first, with Titus behind them, while Domitian rode alongside in magnificent apparel, mounted on a horse that was itself a sight worth seeing. So the law, the candelabra, and this box, the golden table, weighing many talents, was taken off to Rome. In Book 6, Chapter 6, we read this account. As the rebels had fled into the city and the flames were consuming the sanctuary itself and all its surroundings, the Romans brought their standards in the, into the temple court and erecting them opposite the eastern gate, they sacrificed to them there and with thundering acclamations hailed Titus Imperator 
So laden with plunder was every soldier that throughout Syria the value of gold was reduced by half. With the priest still looking out on the outer wall of the sanctuary was a lad parched with, the thir with thirst who begged the Roman guards to give him safe conduct and confessed his great sin. They felt sorry for his youth and this youth and distress and granted him safe conduct. He came down and drank and drank, then filled with water the vessel he had brought and dashed back to his friends above. The guards failed to stop him and cursed him for breaking his word. He retorted that he had broken no covenant, for the agreement was not that he should stay with them, but only that he should descend and get some water. He had done both these things, and he considered that he had not broken his word. Such cunning in one so young astounded the Romans who had been outwitted. However, on the fifth day the starving priests came down and were taken to Titus by the guard, whom they implored to spare their lives. He replied that the time for pardon was past, and that the one thing that might have justified their being spared was gone, and that it was the duty of the priests to perish with their temple. He then ordered their execution. There was a footnote here on this particular passage in Josephus. It goes like this. The the eastern gate of the Temple Mount precincts faced the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives. It was at a lower level than the Blazing Temple, and the Romans deliberately fanned the conflagration so that nothing could be spared. Josephus emphasizes this point, that the temple was not only ruined, but also desecrated by the ritual act that the legionaries performed there. The standards of the legion were sacred objects to Gentiles, tantamount to the cult image of the gods, and sacrifice could be offered to them. It is significant that in the commentary on Habakkuk discovered at Qumran, in the Qumran scrolls, uh, it's entitled the Kittim, that is the Romans, are distinguished as sacrificing to their standards and their arms. For a Jew, such an act was the abomination of desolation. What I just read about the little child deceiving the Romans, using uh, words cunningly crafted to make an agreement so that he could break that agreement, was really, to me, the, uh, the key to seeing the whole destruction of the, of the Jewish race. Few people realize, but the Jews became such experts in using the law against uh, Goyim, Gentiles, other nations, using the law against God Himself. They became so good at manipulating words that they were the height, the highest deceivers of the very law themselves. Jesus came to that generation. And he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and it appears as if he cleansed the temple the second time at the end of his ministry, twice. Through that period, he went throughout Israel, and he cast out demons. He cleaned the house. Do you remember the, uh, the parable of Jesus? A man had a, had a spirit, was cast out 
cleaned, swept clean, but he didn't fill it. And so the demon came back, took seven worse, and so the man was seven times worse than he was before. That was the condition of Israel from Jesus' ascension to the destruction in 70 A.D. From that time to 70 A.D., Israel became seven times worse than it was when Jesus went through and cleansed the people of Israel. Seven times worse. Josephus, and I can't find it right here, but somewhere in there, he, of his own, out of his own mouth, says, said that it was as if all the demons in the world had entered into Israel. Now, I've spoken to uh, some pastors and uh, Bible teachers on this point in the past, and some of them would say, Gary, I agree with everything that you say here, and, uh, and I believe it all happened exactly the way you said and the way Josephus said here. But all of this had to do with Israel. It really has nothing to do with the church. It really doesn't have anything to do with us today. The effect was only for those people. We're in a new place, and, and we have not, we're not affected by it. But in the words of, uh, of William Bell, Jr., in a little track that he did uh, called uh, AD 70, Local or Universal, he brings out a couple of good points that I'd like to share with you. He points out, first, almost all agree that all the verses, Matthew 3.34, refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It is in this section that Jesus says, quote, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be, Matthew 24.27. Since this verse comes before verse 34, it must refer to 70 A.D., coming within the first generation, first century generation, verse 34. It is categorically affirmed that this verse teaches not the locality, but the universality of the coming of Christ. Jesus is refuting the false teachers, verse 26, that his AD 70 coming would be secret, local, or confined to some dark place. Rather, it would be known and seen by all. Second, who in the first century did not know about the destruction of Jerusalem? All the Jews knew it. Did all Jews live in Jerusalem? All the Romans and Greeks knew it. Did they live in Jerusalem? Inasmuch as they knew of Jerusalem's fall, they knew of the return of Christ. Even Titus, the Roman general, admitted that only with God's help could the city be taken. Uh, we, we recorded that uh, account that Josephus spoke. We conclude that the fall of Jerusalem was published worldwide as the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and the time of his coming. Matthew 24, verses 14, 27, 30, 34. Third, we ask, if the fall of Jerusalem was only a local event with no impact or consequences beyond the limits of the local city, then why is it called the sign of the Son of Man in heaven? Matthew 24, 30. Was heaven located in Jerusalem? What need was there to show by Jerusalem's fall that Christ was seated on God's throne? If all that had occurred before 70 A.D. was sufficient and conclusive, then does Jesus lie when he says Jerusalem would be a final sign? Plainly is the kingship 
of Christ of local or universal consequence? Does the enthronement of Christ at God's right hand have significance only for those in the local city? Was it only for the first century, or is it Christ's enthronement of great consequence to all for all times, even for us today? Since his enthronement is for us today, and who can deny it, then does not Jerusalem's fall have impact on the 20th century generation as it did the first? Does the mere fact that an event occurred in a certain locality confine its impact to that locality? What about the crucifixion of Christ? Why not argue it is a local event of concern only to those who lived in Jerusalem? As in the cross event, we must look not only to where an event occurred, but also to what is revealed about that event. It is the revelatory word of God that moves an event from the locality of its occurrence to its proper place in the scheme of redemption. Fourth, the fall of Jerusalem affected souls in Hades, the spiritual realm of the dead. Quote, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Um, Matthew 12:39 and 40. You know, I'm interjecting here into his little tract, but you know, the sign of Jonah the prophet was a begruntled, prophet who God told to go to the world, to Babylon, and that God would save all of Babylon, and he did, every single person in Babylon. And Jonah didn't want to give the word because they were the quote-unquote enemies of God, and God didn't want them delivered, or not God, Jonah. Even after Babylon was uh, repented and was forgiven of their sins, Jonah stayed a sour prophet. That's exactly what happened to Israel. And I tell you something, Christian, that's exactly what's happening to the church. The church has the same sour spirit, most of it, as, as Jonah the prophet did. They're waiting for the world to get toasted. They want to get raptured out of here, and they want to see the world finally get what it has coming to it, what it deserves. Back to the track. In the above text, there can be no doubt of the generation under discussion. It is that of the Pharisees who say, We want to see a sign from you. It is to that generation that Jesus says, No sign will given but that of Jonah in reference to his resurrection. Further, Jesus also said, Speaking of that same generation, The men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Verses 41 through 45. If these events can be removed from the first century, then so can the sign of Jonah. Therefore, these events would happen within the first generation. Neither the men of Nineveh nor the queen of Sheba were in Jerusalem when it fell. Fifth, the blood of all the righteous is avenged on Jerusalem. Jesus said this would clearly come upon that generation then alive. Quote, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in the synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. 
Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Matthew 23, 34-36 No one can doubt that the first century generation is intended. Verse 37 The Lord said the blood of those murdered, even all the righteous blood would be avenged on that generation. These dead ones were in Hades, within the spiritual realm, located, not located in the local city of Jerusalem. Yet at its fall, they would be avenged. Therefore, the 70 AD event affects souls in Hades beyond the local city limits. The righteous dead of the Old Testament era and those whom the Lord would send after Pentecost, Acts 2, some of whom would die. Those persecuted, the living, would know by reading the Gospel of Matthew and by the fulfillment of it in 70 AD that God had avenged and vindicated them. By the way, all saints were told to flee from the city before it fell, Matthew 24, 15-20, and Revelation 18:4. Not a single Christian was in the local city, but all Christians living throughout the world were vindicated at its fall. Is the vindication of righteous of the righteous a local event? If so, then inspiration is impunged. Jesus is a liar, God forbid, and not a single Christian could be vindicated since all were outside of Jerusalem. Those who were vindicated are told to, quote, Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you, holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Revelation 18.20. See also Revelation 19.2. Not all those to be vindicated were living. Many, as we have noted earlier, were dead and in Hades. Even God and Christ had to be vindicated for Israel's rejections and crucifixion of the Savior and persecution of the saints. Romans 12:19, Hebrews 10:30 and 37. Therefore, Jerusalem's fall affected rejoicing for all the righteous saints, dead who were raised from Hades, the living, and God and Christ, none of whom were in the local city. All involved knew they were avenged. Finally, God's judgment on Jerusalem was a vindication of Christ and His cause. That is Christianity or the gospel. Is the gospel local? physical, temporal, or is it universal, spiritual, and eternal? 1 Peter 1, 25. You know, as I share this teaching with, uh, with Christians all over the place, I'm, I'm just absolutely convinced that uh, as, as much as the Chinese, or do you remember in the uh, 60s and 70s, we got accounts of the kind of Chinese... Um, brainwashing techniques they used. I'm convinced that the church today, the modern church, is as brainwashed, I mean just as brainwashed, as the Chinese people were brainwashed into communism. We cannot read the Bible clearly anymore. I mean, our eyes are covered with scales of credit cards and computers called the Beast and the 10 European Economic Community thing, the, the Hal Lindsey, Billy Graham, Jack Van Immepe, uh, you know, type of concept of what is going to come on the horizon that we can't even read the Bible anymore and see plain, plain scriptures. Why? Because we're too interested in listening to Christian fiction and not studying world history, church history, um, Western European history. If we studied these things and studied the Bible in context to the times, the historical times, the Bible would become so simple that even a child could understand it.
When we read 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, 1 and 2, for example, it becomes very clear that the kind of coming that the first Christians were expecting is radically different than the kind of coming that the church today is expecting, you know, any moment right on the horizon. And I want to talk a little bit about what were they looking at when they expected the coming of Jesus Christ, the second return, what were they looking for? In this particular passage in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, give an indication that whatever it was that they were expecting was quite different than what the church today is expecting to happen any moment. And we want to talk about this so that maybe some of those scales will come off your eyes and you can begin to read this Bible and, uh, and understand. We're going to be reading a couple of scriptures here by a guy named Paul who of all the people that was vindicated the most by the destruction of 70 A.D., it was probably this man, Paul. Why? Well, Paul was given a commission to preach a brand new gospel called his gospel. His gospel was without a doubt radically different than James's gospel, Peter's gospel, who was still under the law, who still maintained the law, who still offered up sacrifices. Yes, the Gentiles didn't have to do near as much as, as they had to do. But let me tell you something. The, 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 the apostles of the Church of Jerusalem stayed with the temple right to the end. It was Paul who was beginning to preach a new creation, a new covenant, a new priesthood, a new city, new Jerusalem, no longer being grafted into the tree Israel, but a new creation in which there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor slave. What Paul was preaching was radically different than what Peter was preaching. It was pure grace. Peter and the rest of them were pre preaching a mixture of law and grace. James, read his epistle, Faith and Works. Paul was preaching something t completely different. And throughout his, uh, his ministry, he constantly butted heads with the apostles who knew Jesus after the flesh. Paul was the only one who didn't know Jesus after the flesh. And his gospel was the true gospel that would go throughout the world. But by the time the 60s AD came along, Paul was losing ground. The other apostles, their mixture of law and grace was winning. And Paul was beginning to look more and more like a heretic. And they were commanding him to repent and to get his neck back under the law. Some people believe that in the end, ultimately, Paul did just that. But his, his gospel, his gospel of pure grace, by grace through faith, save that way, walk that way, and go out of this world that way, that gospel was, was being destroyed and mutilated and being done away with in the 60s AD, when Nehru became emperor and his, uh, his second wife was a, a, a God-fearer, a Jewess, boy, the, 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 the Jewish nations just thought they had the greatest thing going here. Now they had a God-fearer right, right sitting on the throne next to Nehru himself. 
And everyone was beginning to abandon Paul and think and see that look at look at you know Jerusalem under the law and it's it's now a favored nation among uh, uh, you know, among uh, Rome, and look at the beautiful city. You know this truly is the messianic age. You know coming. I mean Israel is going to be the center of this great you know thing that was right on on the horizon. And Paul was warning, no, there's judgment ahead. No, there's judgment ahead. No, there's judgment ahead. And when different things happened in throughout the empire that appeared to be that very judgment, sometimes people would, would assume that that's exactly what was going on. The day of the Lord was, was in fact. And Paul had to write in a couple of situations to two different people to let them know this is not it. This is not what I'm talking about. It's right at the door. But this judgment that you're talking about here is not the one. And we find those two passages in uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, verses 1 and 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He's telling them, no, whatever it is that you're expecting here, whatever it is that you think uh, had occurred, caused you to think that this is not, whatever it was, it was not the day of the Lord. The other place that we, uh, that we take a look at and find a similar passage is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Uh, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who are straying concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Now, a question for you. If that first century Thessalonian pictured an end-time scenario like you hear in the late great planet Earth, uh, people being raptured in the middle of the cars, one going and one staying, the world being full of nuclear explosions, um, the Antichrist uh, in Jerusalem uh, doing his, his dirty work, um, the signs, the powerful signs in the heavens, the, the, the stars literally falling to the earth, the sun giving forth its light no more, and the moon you know, turning blood red. All of these signs that fundamentalists today say will happen at the end of the world. If in fact the Thessalonians were picturing that kind of, uh, of, a, uh, of event, Paul would say, you, you, you dummy, I mean, can't you see? You know, nothing like this is even close. Obviously, they were looking for something very, very different than the modern church. And, you know, something that could have actually happened, and they interpreted it to be the day of the Lord. My point is, whatever it is that they were looking for doesn't look anything like what we modern Christians seem to be looking for. Our misconceptions of the coming of the Lord, I'm afraid we were, our eyes and our minds are so filled with so many uh, false images that have been uh, perpetrated on us by the Roman Catholic Church, by the Protestant Church, Pentecostal, charismatic TV preachers, that uh, 
a four-tape series isn't going to even make a dent in a lot of the images that, that we've been bombarded with. This tape series is just really an, introduc an introduction to the subject, but I want to uh, read a little tract by a gentleman by named William H. Bell that begins to show you how scriptures that you expect to literally see fulfilled in a particular way because of the movies that you've seen and things like that lately, how they can be perfectly have already fulfilled uh, and so beautifully and so perfectly, if you just understand that the Jewish language, the apocalyptic language, is radically uh, different than the fundamentalist approach of today. And if you don't understand you know, Jewish writings, you will not understand the New Testament, and you will not understand the times that you live in. The scripture I refer to at this time is, is every eye saw him. Okay. I'm going to read just a little bit about that, just to give you an idea that we need to change our whole perspective of how we read the Bible. Many have often asked, did every eye see him? The reason for this question is the problem some have with interpreting the second coming of Christ as a past versus future event. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him. All and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. This text does harmonize with the 70 AD return of Christ at the fall of Jerusalem. Consider the following. First, the historical background of the text is found in Zechariah 12.10. This places the passage in a Jewish historical context. Second, Jesus quotes the passage first in Matthew 24:30 and applies it to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is also a historical Jewish context. Third, John was pre present hearing how Jesus quoted and applied the text. Finally, in all three places where the text appears, there are time clues which limit its application to the first century. In Zechariah, the prophecy against the nation of Israel is introduced with the famous, quote, burden of the word of the Lord, end quote, chapter 12, 1 and 2. The word burden, when used by the prophets regarding nations, is always in a context of impending judgment, Isaiah 13, 1, Isaiah 15, 1, Isaiah 17, 1, Isaiah 19, 1, Isaiah 21, 1, uh, 21 1, 21 11, 21 uh, 3, 13, Isaiah 23 1, Nehemiah 1 1, Zechariah 9 1. Secondly, because the, of the judgment that is coming upon Judah and Jerusalem, the land will mourn. 12 10. The mourning will be severe, as one mourns for his only son, and as one grieves for a firstborn. It is the grief of death. Proof of this is seen in verse 11, for it is, quote, like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. This refers to the mourning of Israel over the death of Josiah, the pious king of Israel. He died quickly from a mortal wound from an archer in the valley of Megiddo, 2 Chronicles 35, verses 22 through 24. His death occasioned universal mourning in Israel. 
Thirdly, the phrase, quote, in that day, end quote, quoted repeatedly in chapters 12 through 14, clearly refers to a time following the cessation of inspired prophets, many years after the crucifixion. The Lord would come to do battle with Jerusalem accompanied by, quote, all the saints, Zechariah 13, 1 through 6, and Zechariah 14, verses 5 and verses 1. Therefore, the morning would accompany death, not merely human death, but the death of national Israel. In this judgment, Israel would forever be separated from God as a nation, Matthew 21, verses 43. They would no longer sustain an exclusive covenantal relationship with him. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and Ephesians 2, 12. Fourth, the mourning over this national loss is equally universal. The land by Metanoni, the people of Israel, mourn. Note it is every family, every tribe. Chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. Fifth, with this background, Jesus quotes the prophecy in Zechariah 12, 10 through 14, placing it into a context of judgment upon national Israel. Quote, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. End quote. Refer to Matthew 24, 30, and take a look also at uh, Matthew 23, 32, and uh, 24, verses 3 and 34. Sixth, Jesus adds the element of, quote, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, end quote, to the mourning by all tribes in the land. In one graceful stroke, he connects Daniel 13, not to the day of Pentecost, but to the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus' own inspired interpretation and application of Daniel's prophecy, and serves to strengthen what we have said above about our text in Zechariah as a judgment passage on national Israel. Seventh, the setting of Daniel 7 is judgment. The court is seated, the books are opened, the beast is destroyed. The Son of Man who comes on the clouds in Daniel 7.13 is none other than the Ancient of Days, verse 22. The problem many interpreters have with this text stems from try, trying to interpret Daniel's dream or vision rather than listening to Daniel's own interpretations given by the angel. Compare an attempt to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, ch chapter 2, verses 31 through 35, without reading Daniel's explanation, chapter 2, verses 36 and 40, through 45. Therefore, the Ancient of Days, or Son of Man, coming in clouds is a judgment text which Jesus places in the context of Jerusalem's fall in 70 A.D. Further, in this event, that is, Israel's fall, the application of Zechariah 12.12 finds its historical fulfillment. It was then that all the tribes, every family, mourned. They saw Jesus, the Son of Man, coming in judgment upon the nation. Eighth, Jesus placed the mourning of all the tribes and his cloud coming within the limits of the first generation, first century generation. Quote, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all be fulfilled. If you study that word there, Jenea out, 
it clearly, you know, there's some people say, well, that doesn't mean this generation. To, it means a future generation. Well, it doesn't say that. You can you can assume that, but it doesn't fit. And then the other people say this race, this generation, there, it's the, the Jewish race will by no means will pass away. Let me tell you, you can play with single scriptures like this all you want to, and 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 do something like this. But when you take all of these things and you take a look at 70 AD for what really happened, it just all falls apart. Anyway, let me get back to the tract. Matthew 24, 34. Not only did Jesus say that, by the way, I'm going kind of fast here because I'm starting to run out of tape and I still have a lot more that I want to put on it. Not only did Jesus say that the first century generation would not pass away, he clearly said that all things written would be fulfilled during the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Quote, For the, these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Luke 21, verse 22. Ninth, John the Apostle was present on the occasion when Jesus prophesied the fall of Jerusalem. Mark 13, 3. He therefore heard firsthand how Jesus both interpreted and applied the passages in Zechariah 12 and Daniel 7. He knew clearly that the context was the judgment of Israel. And it is clear that Jesus does not quote either passage to explain a future coming beyond 70 AD. If we can credit the Apostle John with having any sense whatsoever, we should have no difficulty in accepting the following. Jesus sat face to face with John and told him along with Peter, James, and Andrew that Zechariah 12, 10 through 14 and Daniel 9, Daniel 7, 9 through 13 refers to the fall of Jerusalem. If John was going to do any teachings on the passages named, he would teach and apply them just as Jesus did. He would teach that the mourning of every tribe and seeing the Son of Man coming in the clouds refers to Jesus' return in 70 A.D. He would be doing what he was taught. He would be following the Master's footsteps and reading his lips. John was given no other framework, no other time, no other event other than the coming of Christ to judge the nation of Israel in 70 A.D. Tenth, it is interesting that Jesus gave the prophecy concerning the morning to John a second time. Does he change his interpretation and application which he gave John during the Olivet Discourse? Does Zechariah 12, 10-14 and Daniel 7:13 mean something during the revealing of the book of Revelation that it did not mean in A.D. 30? Does time change the meaning of God's words? Listen to the text which John clearly says he received from Christ, Revelation 1.1. Quote, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Revelation 1.7. All the elements of Zechariah 12, Daniel 7, and Matthew 24 are set forth in the text. 1. It is the coming in clouds which Jesus said would happen before that first generation passed. Matthew 24, 3, Matthew 24, 30, Matthew 24, 34. It is clearly Jerusalem's fall. Second, it is a coming that would be universally seen. Note all the tribes of the land, they who pierced him would see. You know, tribes 
Jerusalem, you know, or uh, Israel, 12 tribes of the land, you know, the very ones who pierced him, they would see. Quote, this again harmonizes with Zechariah 12 and Matthew 24, 30. Three, it is a coming that produces mourning in the land of Israel among all the tribes. Again, every family of Israel. Who can miss the parallels? What right then does John have to change the interpretation to fit a 20th century and beyond application since Jesus does not give even the slightest hint that he is changing his interpretation given in Matthew 24? He does not and neither does anyone today. Finally, that the passage refers to 70 AD and the coming of Christ at Jerusalem's fall is clear from the time limits in the first chapter and throughout the book. Those things would shortly come to pass. The time was near. Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 and 3. Also see chapter 22 verses 6, 10 and 12. Every eye truly saw him. Well, I have to stop this series somewhere. Uh, we're in four tapes, and somewhere along the way it has to end, and this is as good a time as any to uh, end it. We can go on and on and on about this. There's no end to it. You have thousands of questions, I'm sure, or many of them, and I hope some of you will write and ask us about each specific scripture or, or you know, just whatever. Please feel free to write us and, uh, and express your hearts and ask those questions. I want to end this, those of you who have listened, and maybe you don't understand a lot of things, and maybe you have a lot of questions, but deep down in your heart, you realize and you know that what was on these last four tapes, that there is a strong element of truth here, something that you've never heard before, and yet it sounds and seems right. I want to leave you with this warning and this encouragement. You saw the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and you saw the end of it. Destru I mean, you know, the most horrible, horrible destruction. And it had to be that way. The law had to end that way. The world needs to see what the end of law produces. The end of law produces self-righteousness, pride, hypocrisy of the highest order. It produces a group of people using the law against God and the people of the world. Israel ended up using a, an instrument that God gave to, to help the world and actually used it to try to destroy the world. The church today, whether you're in the Roman Catholic Church, whether you're in the Protestant Church, whether you're in, in the Charismatic Church or the Methodist Church or the Sonship Church, the church today is in the same condition that Israel was in 1900 years ago. I don't know how many more years or centuries or whatever it'll take to bring it to the exact end, but I tell you this, if you're sitting in the average pew today in a Roman Catholic, Protestant, Pentecostal, charismatic type environment, you're on the same road that Israel was on 1900 years ago. I have in front of me a newsletter by uh, 
a person who's we've gotten his material for a long, long time. He's a pro-family, uh, pro-moral person of the highest order. I mean, this gentleman, um, you know, most of us would love to have him as our neighbor. His name, his name is Dr. Dobson. He produces many, many books. He has many radio programs, television programs, produces videos. He's done a lot of things in the area of focusing on the family and, and preserving the family and keeping it from being destroyed by the forces of the world. I have in front of me uh, an issue, uh, August 1995, issue of a, of a newsletter that he sends out to people in which he's warning uh, us of a, uh, a conference that's going to happen in China called the United Nations Fourth World Council on Women in Beijing, China. 170 nations will be there, and our country will represent, will be represented there. And he points out the uh, that we are right at the verge of a total destruction of family, the way he feels the Bible, uh, you know, believes that family should be. Do you recall the condition that uh, Rome was in with the gladiator shows and Nehru taking Christians and uh, lighting up, up his torches for his garden parties? How horrible and cruel Rome was? And just now we took a look and saw at the end how horrible God's own people, Israel, became, eating their own flesh, faction against faction using the law for their own personal gain, and actually using the law against God himself. Well, in this particular issue of uh, Focus on the Family, Dr. Dobson is trying to encourage all of us to not send that delegation, first of all, to a nation that is doing some of the most horrible things. I mean, you know, for this council to be going on in, in China, he points out, and, I, and he documents every single thing in this newsletter, and he points out, um, and I quote from him, sending a delegation to China should be unthinkable for two other reasons. First, Senator Jesse Helms, chairman of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, held hearings in May to investigate a deeply disturbing practice occurring inside China. Half a dozen witnesses testified that the Chinese government is satisfying its need for hard cash by executing young prisoners and then harvesting their organs while their bodies are still warm. Sue Lloyd Roberts, a BBC reporter, and Harry Wu, who spent 19 years in China's forced labor camps, showed the senators a shocking video of the actual executions. I also saw a similar video while in Scotland three years ago. Standing by were surgical vans and medical teams waiting to cannibalize the bodies just moments after death. The organs thus extracted are sold at market price, black market prices to Westerners desperate for kidneys, hearts, livers, corneas, etc. Who knows how this lucrative market for body parts has influenced China's inclination to kill young men and women accused of various minor crimes. Even without this financial incentive, Prisoners have been executed historically for simply disagreeing with their government. 
Mr. Wu reported that he witnessed such an execution of a fellow inmate in 1970 who merely had merely written down, down with Chairman Mao on a cigarette packet. In early May, Wu was arrested in North China and charged with espionage and high treason. If convicted, he will be sentenced to death. And then he points out another thing, even more atrocious. I mean, this just makes me sick when I, when I, when I hear of this. And our government, you know, presidents like Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, you know, supporting this kind of thing, it just makes me want to just scream. I quote, If that isn't enough to turn one's stomach, consider this, according to World, which, in, which also reports reported the practices described above, human fetuses have begun to appear on menus of Chinese restaurants as a delicacy and health tonic. This account was cited, quote, to investigate widespread rumors that unborn human beings were being bought and so sought and eaten to improve complexions and improve, promote general well-being, an Eastern Express reporter on March 1st entered the state-run Zenzen Zen Shenzhen Health Clinic for Women and Children and requested a fetus for a feigned illness. A female doctor told the reporter the department had run out of fetuses, but to come back. The next day, according to the paper, the reporter returned at lunchtime. The doctor eventually emerged from the operating theater holding a fist-sized glass bottle stuffed with thumb-sized fetuses. She said, there are ten fetuses here, all aborted this morning. You can take them. We are a state hospital and don't charge anything. Normally, we doctors take them home to eat, all free. Since you don't look well, you can have them. How far have we come in 1900 years? Well, if the world represents Rome, it's as sick as it has ever been. But the question that I have in my heart is, have God's people come anywhere in the last 1900 years? After God dealt with Israel for 1500 years, you just saw the account of what the heart of Israel was full of, all kind of abominations. And I'm going to make a statement, and I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to hope that it will cause you to search your heart and hopefully to write and, and find out what the heck I'm really talking about, because I'm not going to go on to it on this tape. I just hope that this series made you wake up enough to see wait a minute, I have got to rethink some things. And then I hope you'll re respond in writing and asking for some more material. I'm going to make a very radical statement, and it's going to shock you. As atrocious and wicked and evil as China has become here in eating their own children and offering them up as delicacies, in restaurants. Our moral, family-supporting, most moral aspect probably of the Western world, Dr. Dobson, psychiatrist or psychologist, 
head of uh, you know an organization, multi-million dollar organization, to promote family in the world. His organization, his kind of thinking, his kind of doctrine, and the teachings that focus on the family has on who Jesus Christ is, who the God of the universe is, that teaching will produce, in the end, the same horrible abominations that the nation of Israel was filled in with 1900 years ago. So I say to those of you who are in nice middle-class America, who read Dr. Dobson, and who support his, his, uh, his ministry, and I believe many of the things that Dr. Dobson stands for are for a healthy society. But the heart, the central of the gospel that Dr. Dobson, Billy Graham, the leaders of Roman Catholic, Protestant, Pentecostal, Charismatic churches teach. That gospel, in the end, will produce a people, a Christian people, who go to church every Sunday, who will look and act as ugly as the Chinese eating their own children for complexion improvements. Now, I know that uh, what I just said was, uh, how dare you? How can you possibly say this? I said it, and I don't repent. The doctrines and the concepts of God and Jesus that we have been fed, I know that what you worship you will become. And the gospel that has been preached by fundamentalism by Roman Catholicism, by Pentecostalism, and by the Charismatic Movement, that gospel, that image of God, will produce a people in the end as horrible as the Chinese and as horrible as Israel in 70 AD. Now I hope what I just said will stir you enough to write and ask me what the heck I'm talking about. I'm not going to get into it on this particular tape, but I'm just going to leave it at, at this. That if you're the average Christian sitting in the average Western American British church, and again, Roman Catholic, Protestant, Charismatic, Pentecostal, doesn't matter. The image of God that is being portrayed in that system and what you're being conformed to in that system will produce exactly the same end result that Judaism 1900 years produced. 
a self-righteous, prideful, arrogant, obstinate, blind people. And Christianity is exactly on the same road. So I hope I've said something strong enough to stir you to write and ask me specifically, Gary, what are you talking about? I'll just leave it at this as far as this tape is concerned. Dr. Dobson, although he finds Bill Clinton, his uh, administration's policy just absolutely horrible and wicked, Dr. Dobson's concept of God and Bill, Grant, or, uh, Bill Clinton's concept of God is much more in line with the Chinese ideology that would take fetuses and eat them. All three of them are much more in line with each other than they would care to admit.